this is episode 76 of G.I. Joburg. And tonight, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of a franchise very close to all of our hearts. It is not G.I. Joe. Back in 1996, G.I. Joe was deader than disco. Instead, something else had us firm in its grasp. It was a world of survival horror called Biohazard, or better known as Resident Evil. A video game produced by Capcom in 1996, this game not only shaped the genre of horror video gaming, but had a profound effect on the way I viewed all of my fan properties, G.I. Joe included. But in my survival horror team, I am accompanied by three highly trained members of the STARS team. They are... Yeah, I got a shotgun! Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Robert. Special missions, Cujo. This is a special mission. You know it is. And I'm Steve. And we're about to disembark the chopper and step off into a world of survival horror. Guys, Resident Evil. We all played it. We all loved it. What's the connection? Gaming sort of represents an evolution of playing with your toys in front of Saturday morning cartoons and playing with figurines outside in the garden and and in parks and stuff with your friends. It sort of evolved into your friends getting into like a room together, playing video games together and, and generally experiencing a whole world by essentially playing with toys that had now become sort of digital and interactive. And through that, video games gave us experiences, especially with the advent of the PlayStation. We were given gaming experiences, which had allowed us to experience things that we had never been able to experience before. For example, flying a jet, racing highly physics-challenged sports cars around crazy uh, circuits, listening to awesome Euro trash style rave music. Yes, I'm looking at you, Ridrace. I love you, you sexy bitch. And also allowed us to um, experience the lives of three marooned specialists that were trapped in a mansion and had to get out. And it wasn't about collecting coins or anything like that. It was about making sure that you're keeping these people alive and, and guiding them through. And this was all done from different perspectives, uh, whether it was a bird's eye view or a you know fly on the wall view, maybe a dead zombie on the floor view, viewing a corridor and you were moving these characters along. Essentially, you were playing with toys on screen. You were controlling Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine and you know facing off against monsters. And if I'm understanding you correctly, Paul, it's as if video games had been severely rudimentary and limited by their own technology up to that point biohazard or resident evil whichever you prefer was a watershed moment where the storyline the action and just the general atmosphere was cinematic and also evocative of our play with our toys because let's face it it wasn't first person perspective You were observing these characters in the third person from a fixed camera view. So it's very much like playing with your action figures in an environment that you created. Uh, That always seemed 
to speak to me very personally as a fan of action figures that was an exciting moment to know that like i was watching this really cool really involved game essentially a story an action figure adventure that had become something more and the whole notion of of gi joe's being involved in a a horror scenario was something new to me something that i hadn't done uh, much of but always evoked something extra it wasn't just adventure it was it was fear it was terror and that's something that both in the video game format and then aside with my action figures that was a very very powerful emotion best played with the lights off oh yeah Oh, yes. How about you other two gents? How do you stitch these two worlds together? Yeah, I think I probably agree with, with, with Paul. I mean, it's, you, you know, it's these sort of stories that you could play out with your figures coming across on the screen. And I think Resident Evil came at a, at a good time in video gaming because with the advent of the PlayStation, they could do a lot more gameplay-wise, but they could also couldn't do as much as they probably wanted to do. I mean, there were still a lot of restrictions, which is why I kind of, if you look, and as, as Resident Evil develops the, as the games through the years, they kind of shift from being survival horror and about um, the emphasization of combat and the scarcity of uh, resources, which is a big thing in the earlier Resident Evil games. They kind of they shift more towards a third-person shooter and more action and rather than horror film-inspired plot lines um, as you go from like Resident Evil 4 onwards. So the technological stuff kind of allowed it to be restricted and way more scary than, say, the later ones were. Yeah, horror is just such an interesting subject, I think. And it, it seems even the creators of Jojo, at least the um, Jojo Collectors Club, kind of saw a connection between zombies and Jojo because they themselves released an entire box set of figures inspired. Yeah, just do yourself, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> inspired by zombies. Nice segue, because why? Because G.I. Joe Berg and Recent Memory have been doing a segment on definitive sculpts. But this being our horror tribute episode, we're going to switch that up and instead do a more focused discussion of the G.I. Joe zombies, Toxo Zombie, and Zombie Viper. Cujo, you want to kick that bad boy off? Well, before I get to the zombies, I, I, I got to throw in my two cents, brother, about the associations. Um, well, dude, G.I. Joe and Stars are both introduced uh, with explosions or flames going on behind them. And they each in, they each have their little bit. You know, Wesker's fixing his hair. Uh, somebody's fixing their glasses, maybe. That's probably the same person. But um, it's all Wesker, baby. <laughs> it is. It's hard to see past that guy. But no, so you got you got the personality of, of both G.I. Joe and the stars, and it just kind of works. So I guess with the introduction of zombies into the G.I. Joe line, what do we have, like three different options, two? I'd say two and a half. They've re-released the zombie Viper uh, this year, in fact, Yeah. in case you didn't get enough of it back in 2011. But let's dial the clock way back to Toxo Zombie. And just to set the tone, I'd like to read you his file card. A file card that I'd like to think had a semi-competent writer authoring it. It's simply one uh, block of text which reads as follows. 
Being a Toxo Viper is the final assignment in the full-term enlistment in the Toxo Vipers. Known within the ranks of Cobra as the Leaky Suit Brigade, constant and prolonged exposure to the worst chemical wastes, radioactive byproducts, and toxic sludge have mutated these once normal Cobra Troopers into horribly deformed zombies. They're not quite among the living, but not quite deceased enough to completely rot away. Toxo zombies still have a faint glimmer of the worst aspects of humanity, such as the need to acquire useless personal possessions and the desire to eat things injurious to their health. It's that last sentence that really clinches me and makes me think, mm, either this person was a scholar of Larry Harmer or Larry Harmer himself, because he's basically adding social commentary that we are in fact zombies, that society has a fixation with acquiring useless personal possessions and a desire to eat things injurious to our health, which is quite a powerful statement without actually saying that, guess what? You're a zombie. You're a lemming. You're a sheep. <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty sure that rings your bells, Cujo. You're, you're in George Romero's territory now. But yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about the Steel Brigade. I'm not ready for the meta commentary. To me, the Steel Brigade is my favorite figure. I, I know I talk Firefly, but for me, there's not a better design, like kind of like hidden face, so it could be anybody, and just blue and green on the same figure. I don't, I don't think any figure does it better. So I was really happy when they got the Zombie Brigade Collectors Club dropped it. Do you have any specific thoughts, gentlemen, about this figure? Steel Brigade, for me, was virtually unobtainable. Uh Although my friend and I did try, we did send off our file cards that we had written and our flag points. Uh, but yeah, that obviously arrived at a dead or a dead on arrival sort of post uh, post office or whatever must have been. So it was always kind of an elusive thing. And when it was re-released in the modern era, I picked up a few uh, steel brigaders for myself. They're very cool toys. I I quite enjoy them. They chose very good bodies for them, and they chose a great uh, weapon selection for those guys. And you know, you really can imprint yourself in those figures. And I know I have in, in recent years uh, since acquiring them. And I, I definitely feel it, it fills a spot. Toxo Viper, however, uh, was a figure I didn't even... Oh, the Toxo Zombie, should I say, was a figure I didn't know existed until I got uh, Mark Bellamo's book on the, the G.I. Joe Collecting Guide by Mark Bellamo. And I, I was actually quite surprised that they had done a figure like that. I actually thought that was uh, something I really missed out on. Because... I'm a horror kitty. I've loved horror movies since I was in uh, first grade. <laughs> okay, I've always been a, uh, attracted to uh, scary shit. Um, I'm a big fan of Ghostbusters. I'm a big fan. I'm not that Ghostbusters be all an indoor horror movie, but that was like my gateway drug into to horror movies. I mean, I watched that quite a lot as a kid, and then when I was a little older, I discovered characters like uh, uh, Freddy Krueger and then um, Jason Voorhees, and then obviously. As I like, as you get older, you know, you start finding out about Night of the Living Dead, you know, Land of the Dead, that kind of stuff. Yeah, my my whole sort of love affair with horror started there, and and I would have loved to have had something like a Toxo Viper as a kid. I, I think Toxo um, Zombie. <laughs> Toxo Zombie. Sorry, I mean we had Toxo Vipers, but I would have loved to have had a, a Toxo Zombie. Uh, I think he would have been a lot of fun, and I think. Uh, we would have uh, knitted the G.I. Joe Resident Evil connection 
together a lot quicker in our youth if we had had some uh, if we had known about the toxic zombie then he is great in concept and that's why i read the file card out execution leaves something to be desired the face sculpt is good the detail is 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 there but the exposed leg and hand kind of drop the ball a little bit with the awkward red blotches i mean it's not quite gory enough to sell it as a, you know, a rotten, decayed hand and leg. He's still got some pretty meaty calf muscles. My God, he's he's healthy, man. He he does squats. <laughs> but the face sculpt is good. Uh, I have not endeavoured to go out of my way to getting this figure, even though I have seen carded samples. Yes, carded samples as late as 2014 in the flesh. But I have never felt compelled to pick one up i guess the color scheme just put me off he is in a very lumo green and very very bright pink flash forward to 2011 however and i think gi joe nailed it they got a zombie down perfect or near perfect (laughs) i have a few criticisms of the zombie viper figure but rob do you have an opinion on this figure the new one is quite cool. Actually, I didn't realize there was a an old one. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I mean, he went by a different name. He was part of the Eco Warriors uh, subset. Oh wait, I do remember it now mm. a little. T- I, I but when I was thinking, well, when I was researching this, I, I only noticed the newer ones. Well, they're all you need, man. Those sculpts are magnificent. No, they're they're amazing. But what I also liked was that um, three years later they did the Steel Brigade Zombie Three Pack, which I thought was quite awesome. Because then it's, it, they, they transformed these, these figures, which was supposed to represent us, into zombies, which I, I thought yeah. was quite meta. Yeah, that's what you were talking <laughs> about, right, Cooch? Yeah, well, they did a good job, like, busting out the, the, the visor. And that's always a good look. And some nice sculpting, too. What year, what year is that? 2014. Gotcha. The thing that troubles me about the zombie viper sculpt is it's barefoot. And, dude, you know, that just makes your feet hurt. Yeah, people running around barefoot. <laughs> I don't know. Seems awfully vulnerable. But how do you feel about those kind of really long fingers, almost Code Veronica-like stretchy zombie hands? Tentacles. The Zombie Viper version one that came out in 2011. Um, I snatched up through these guys. I think at the time, uh, Steve, I think you gave me a bit of flack for it. But I mean, you know, it's you. Of course, you're giving me. You're gonna give me flack for it, but. I was really excited at well, with these because they had uh, the rebirth of the G.I. Joe cartoon in a more modern style with the Joes being renegades and whatever. In that show, the main kind of enemy for the Joes to have something to actually kill and not get into trouble was like a sort of a, a gloopy kind of blue nebulous kind of form that would take on a human human characteristics and they would be very Ben Tennish in terms of their appearance. But as figures, I think Hasbro kind of knew that, hey, that's not really going to float with G.I. Joe fans. So they took the opportunity to go and release Zombies in this uh, 30th anniversary line, which was so closely tied to the uh, animated series. Mm, It shared the same MacGuffin, didn't it? The Compound Z. Yes. And then also it's got those tendril-style arms. Yojo.com listed them as tendril arms, and i got to say that's a pretty good name for them. I like the design of these guys a lot. When I had them in hand, it evoked a sense of Resident Evil. It felt like these were a these were designed by Cobra to be weapons. They have a very cool harness. Uh, it's very um, 
psych ward kind of biological experiment. So these things are like literally put on a harness. It, it's Cobra recruits or homeless people or whatever that Cobra kidnaps and uh, converts, puts them in t- some kind of system, puts this like helmet on them and feeds them this compound Z, this gas, and sort of has them on these harnesses so that they can't hurt anybody. And then they just drop them into the battlefield. That's just my my sort of summation of how it could work out. And you know you've you've got them, and you know your uncle Fanny's your aunt. You've got them in the battlefield, and they're looking great. And you know that, like Kujo mentioned, they're barefoot, which to me just makes a lot of sense because I mean, you 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 know these are not like people that were, are worth anything. These are just like people that have just been taken against their will. And you've got fantastic surface texture on them. Oh, the sculpt is insane, man. Oh, it's insanely cool, and I love the character in that zombie's face. It is so. Snarly. It's so creepy and kind of miserable. Like you look at it and you actually feel shit like that was a person kind of thing. And as the Joe community is, you know, when the Joe community is at its best and it's and it's doing cool things like customs and it's, and it's being really creative and adventurous with the toy line. Uh, I'm talking about uh, us, the fans. Uh, when you see customizers actually switch out the blue and gray for, you know, more kind of skin tones and gore and red. Uh, it changes this figure from... Uh, cute hokey blue zombie into wow okay that thing could be in the walking dead or resident evil or dead rising it's it's really great you know i've seen some guys do amazing stuff with that head sculpt Mm. i mean with that whole body sculpt it seems to be missing a few paint apps i mean the blue is explained away by the fact that he's got this compound z coursing through his blood but uh his hair hasn't been painted in I mean, there are a few areas where, like, a terrific sculpt is kind of sullied a bit by missing a few paint apps. But as you say, it is huge custom fodder to build an army of, of, of zombies, essentially. And, yeah, as you say as well, there's, there's a great deal of pity one feels toward this poor trooper. Incidentally, his file card says that they retain their combat skill. So... Can they still handle small arms? It just says that their desire to fight has been increased, making them more dangerous than before. In other words, they are deadly zombie warriors. So they are somewhat of a hybrid. Not quite mindless zombie, but not quite human either. I don't know, man. It would be interesting to see how they'd be characterized if we ever saw them in in official Joe media. I don't want to actually spoil the plot or anything, but... Black Mirror Season 3 is now out on Netflix, um, and I'm sure many of you listening to this podcast who watch that series are enjoying it. And uh, there's there's one uh, particular episode, I think it's called uh, Fighting the Fire or something like that. But that episode, like with what Steve said now, with having semi-competent zombies and things like that, it does evoke certain ideas or certain concepts that come from that specific episode of Black Mirror. And I don't want to spoil anything uh, for guys who haven't watched it because this, um, these episodes are fairly fresh and Black Mirror is cool enough to not spoil for anybody. So when you're watching it after listening to this podcast or if you've seen that episode and you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you'll make that exact the same association. The zombie vipers essentially sound like biological bats. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. The brainlessness they suggest in the file card, but they're still very deadly. Well, they sure as yeah, I'll and- to make. <laughs> yeah, probably. I have a little bit of insider. Uh, the Cobra medics wear green, do they not? Yes, they do. And I don't normally like green on Cobra, but 
it, there is a loose association. Like if, if Cobra's playing with uh, biological stuff, if it goes wrong and some of their medics get uh, contaminated, that's where the green suit's at. Yeah, there's that. That is certainly very valid. I was going to have some conjecture that perhaps these are ways of Cobra inducting non-Cobra personnel to their cause by just jabbing them with this compound Z. Or, and this might link back to your your medic uh, theory, Cujo, these are Cobra personnel who've wound up injured. Their battlefield injuries are not cost-effective to to treat adequately, so they throw them in a medic uniform, toss them off the gurney, inject the compound Z, and, hey, you've got a troop, a functioning troop. Uh, it's sort of traded his, his life-threatening injuries for this kind of pseudo-immortality, which is very, very creepy, man. You can live if you surrender your humanity, or you can die on this table. Your choice. Um, with G.I. Joe oh, having actual zombies um, in the line, it's uh, it's definitely a reflection of the 20 tweens. I don't know what the fuck to call it, but it's definitely a product of the time. I mean, if you think about the 80s, was all about robots. You know, like, we had Transformers, we had Gobots, we had Daryl, we had robots, 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 robots. You know, I mean, Battlestar Galactica is a product of the late 70s, but it's very much an 80s thing. So we had robots, 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 and Cobra had battle android troopers, and okay, G.I. Joe didn't really have much of a presence in the 90s and the late 90s, and as it started to build its presence up in the 2000s, zombies were also becoming more and more popular in the 2000s, and like Rob said, and uh, Rob actually hit the nail on the head yet, this is definitely the bat of this era. There's no need to really improve upon the bat because now Cobra has a much cheaper and trendier solution to to having a a dedicated mindless drone that is fearless on the battlefield and is cheaper to produce. For me, at least, it kind of suggests that, I mean, Resident Evil, this kind of world of um, weird zombie stuff and um, almost the supernatural and the uncanny and G.I. Joe are kind of a little bit more connected than maybe people realize. Because, I mean, if you think about it from the very start, there's always been this weird aspects to G.I. Joe. Um, Minimal. Yeah, you know, it's not completely realistic. I mean, you have bats, you have Zartan, which is, I mean, more from the cartoon, we can change colors and shit. (laughs) The mysticism of the Arishikage clan, Mindbender, Cobra La, eventually, and also the kind of weird experiments that, that, uh, you know, that are performed on the many different um, Cobra troops. Like, for example, like the Strata Viper with the surgery it receives I'm better at yeah, I mean, uh, Mara in the cartoon as well, with her being able to breathe on the water. And <laughs> yeah, stuff. and I mean, and a more recent, at least in the podcast realm, is that um, we recently uh, discussed Serpentor. I mean, yes, he's basically a zombie. <laughs> Ooh, you're getting warmer, Robert. Very close <laughs> to the tale that I'd like to tell about my correlation between Resident Evil. And G.I. Joe. Shall we? Shall we move on, gentlemen? Uh, all I'll say about our definitive sculpt is that, you know, these zombie vipers are very popular and they're very, very cool troop builders. But, you know, if you see one, I'm going to echo Dan's words from Toy Galaxy. If you see one, get one. If you see two, leave one for the next guy. <laughs> you know, this is a great figure and I think all Joe fans should actually have at least one in their collection. If you see one, 
get the magnum and shoot it in the head. Aim for the head. <laughs> Aim for the head. Guys, Resident Evil came at a time when I was a young teen. That awkward time when it wasn't cool to play with your action figures anymore. But I did. At least not in front of your friends. And fortunately, <laughs> I had some friends that joined me on my adventures. And we were quite secretive about it. It happened very much behind closed doors and on weekends. And when Resident Evil hit, we had inspiration for a new avenue of play. It being the mid-90s, G.I. Joe had kind of fallen out of favor ever so slightly. They were still the best articulated action figures at the time, but we had newer figures in that scale that were exciting, more exciting perhaps, to uh, people that were getting them for the first time. I never had many classic uh, Kenner Star Wars action figures, but when Power of the Force came around, boy, oh boy, oh boy, my favorite action figure from like the mid-90s to the late 90s had to have been Boba Fett from Power of the Force. He's rudimentary by today's standards, but he was a freaking Boba Fett action figure. So your imagination filled in the blanks that <laughs> five points of articulation and kind of a dumpy-looking sculpt uh, left you with. So he had wrist rockets, he had grapple launches, uh, he had lasers gas bombs, flamethrowers, the jetpack, naturally, and its included missile, which was non-removable back then. He also came with a gun and his removable Wookiee pelt and uh, shoulder pauldron. Anyways, that action figure was a firm favorite. And when the concept of survival horror started entering my play patterns, all of a sudden lighting became very important to my games. We no longer played anything by daylight or by light bulb. Our new favorite ways of lighting our games were torchlight and candles. I would set up a landscape of boxes, crawl spaces, environments, all lit by candles and uh, handheld lights, and hide weapons and equipment in various places throughout this environment that our characters would need to use to survive and fight their way out. Invariably, this would always take place on some planet where our characters had landed for uh, refreshment, refueling, whatever. They wind up in some bar, space bar, uh, perhaps a mixture between the Mos Eisley Cantina, but like after dark, so like Jabba's Palace, if you were, where a whole bunch of undesirables uh, hung out. There would invariably be some kind of fight, and our characters would band together out of mutual survival, and then they discover that there are some creatures roaming the streets. They find out that this city, after dark, becomes overrun by mindless zombies. And in order to survive this horror, they would have to fight their way through this dense environment 
and get back to their ship, which was always parked, you know, in some remote location, some docking bay on a tall building somewhere that they'd have to fight to. This was my play pattern that kind of dominated my toy adventures for a good long while, and it was a great time. I can't remember who you played as, Rob. I seem to think maybe Scoop made his way onto the scene. I was most certainly Boba Fett. I think maybe you played as Slave Leia. No, not Slave Leia. Um, Leia in her, <laughs> her Bosch, Bosch disguise, yeah. So it's it was a difference, brother. Big yeah, difference. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but not, not chronologically. I mean, they were just a stone throw away from one another. So come on, forgive me that. Anyway, so you kept her mask on and played her as just this kind of this enigmatic bounty hunter. Yeah, I think that's true. And that character had everything to do with Boba Fett, I suppose. I mean, they, they typically had the same same goal for being on that planet, and hence the team-up for mutual survival was a natural one. And we'd go creeping through this landscape, trying to avoid zombies uh, and whatever other monsters lurked in the darkness. I remember the zombie cast that I had was pretty sparse, though. There were no zombie figures to draw on at that point. I had one stand-in, and that was uh, from a McFarlane's Monsters playset. It was a Frankenstein monster. Ironically, it had blue skin too, very much like the Compound Z zombie viper. And he made for a very handsome zombie because his arms were removable and left like a, like a bone stump behind. But he was just one. And of course, to make for a convincing uh, zombie rampage, you need an entire army of zombies. So what did I do? <laughs> I took my Bionic 6 collection and I took Koki Pen and colored them in with blacks <laughs> and greens and reds to make them look gory and disgusting and rotten and decrepit. Well, all except that one guy who was already purple. So he totally fit in. <laughs> uh, what was his name? Uh, um, Glove. Yeah. Love, yeah. Glove was purple, and I think um, Mechanic, he was green. So they were okay, but the Bennett family <laughs> all got colored in, which was, um, uh, in hindsight, a really stupid thing to do. But, hey, what do you do? We were kids, right? Um, so that was my play pattern, and I loved it so, particularly because of the atmosphere. And because I had Resident Evil at my fingertips, I used to take cassette tapes and I used to record the Resident Evil soundtrack so that I could then play that as the the underscoring to our own uh, survival horror games. And that was a great time, let me tell you, gents. But anyway, I've hogged the mic long enough. You guys tell me a little Resident Evil G.I. Joe story. I, I don't know if I can follow with a specific story like that. You said you had candles near boxes. I hope barbecue was nearby. I didn't have a barbecue, man. We were just very careful. Uh, we wouldn't leave them burning if we left the room. So there was always that kind of like recently blown out candle smell permeating the house whenever we played these games. We just had a custom figure called Bryflaze <laughs> and Boss. Oh, incidentally, <laughs> yes. Uh, we had this one bendable figure. He was like a wrestler. <laughs> and we kind of played him over the candle to burn him a bit. He was like the charred zombie. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. He was a black guy already, but we kind of, we really charred him. So he was like just, yeah, hideous. <laughs> Melted man. <laughs> that was great. Anyways, Paul, hit us with some nostalgia, man. 
Okay, so one of the coolest things ever was when David got his PlayStation 1. Well, it had been released in Japan, it was about three months in, and David went to Hong Kong uh, to go and see family and stuff. Well, he wasn't sure about getting a PlayStation. He was actually thinking of getting the upgrade of the TurboGrafx, or maybe even a Neo Geo. So he obviously changed his mind and went, okay, cool, and got a PlayStation, came back to South Africa with a handful of games and re-experienced PlayStation, and this was quite special because uh, I honestly feel we were one of the first people in the country to have done so. And this is a friend of mine that, you know, him and I played with G.I. Joes and stuff a lot. And it was really exciting. We had Ace Combat and we had Ridge Racer and had, we had all of these really cool, odd games, like some great shooters, fighting games, all that kind of stuff, especially it all having come from Japan. And on Street Fighter, he's uh, he had Street Fighter Zero, which is known as Street Fighter Alpha and everywhere, everywhere else in the world other than Japan. It had a bonus disc and the bonus disc actually had a whole bunch of trailers. And uh, one of the trailers was for Breath of Fire 3, that was also an eagerly anticipated title. And then this horror game called Resident Evil Biohazard. It showed these like characters in a, in a sort of a mansion situation being attacked by monsters and zombies, etc. And in that demo reel, something that I don't think a lot of you guys have seen or maybe a lot of listeners have seen. And this was just because this was like sort of, I think, very like alpha or pre-beta footage of this game in action, but it actually had Rebecca using a spray can and a lighter as a flamethrower. As you know, it's not something you can do in the game. And Dave and I were like, this is amazing. Like, I was like, oh god, I have to have this because I fucking love horror games. And I mean, not horror games, I love horror shit. Like, this is amazing. This scratches an itch. So David went back to Hong Kong, you know, fast forward about three or four months, and he asked me what I wanted from Hong Kong. So my answer was, I want a big Gundam model, okay? Because I'd just seen this Gundam model. And then he sent me, he phones me from Hong Kong. He goes, dude, that Gundam model is like this much. And um, I know that you were talking about getting a, a Neo Geo CD. Like, would you rather get the Neo Geo CD? So I'm like, well, find out how much the price is. And then he phoned me back and he goes, okay, Neo Geo CD is really expensive. And the games work out to a thousand rand. Yeah, back then they were a thousand bucks. I think it was Neo Geo CD or just the Neo Geo 64. But anyway, I, I can't remember, but it wasn't a Neo Geo that I wanted to now get because he didn't get it. Uh, and then he was like, well, I can get you a PlayStation for a thousand eight hundred bucks and that will have everything and you'll be able to get one original game and, you know, like I can make a plan and get you some other stuff, you know, because at that time there's a lot of cool pirated stuff and blah, blah, blah. He's like, what do you want? I'm like, I want Biohazard. So he's like, no problem. So he goes to the shop to try and get it, and everybody sold out of Biohazard. But he doesn't, I don't hear from him. I mean, he just told me when he got back in, he gave me my console, and there it fucking was. Biohazard, and like, we stuck this thing in, and it was amazing. And the immediate correlation we had with these characters was like, okay, cool. This is very G.I. Joe-like, in the sense that, hey, we have military guys and whatever doing this kind of thing. It was then that video games had sort of taken over toys. It was then that David and I had sort of stopped going to shops together to see what toys were available. So in a lot of ways, Resident Evil was the nail in the coffin to me really buying toys, uh, even though I still did <clears throat> and carried on. But it was kind of the end of that because a lot of that money that would have been used on toys, I had to negotiate into buying new games. But Resident Evil is a special thing for me because firstly, mine was all in Japanese. All the dialogue, as you guys know, is in English, and it's the same in the Japanese version. It was great because 
we were figuring this game out with it being in Japanese and everything. And that is a really great memory for me because I felt like playing that game as a kid has sort of made me grow up, grow up in a way. Not not because like it had mature content, because honestly, it wasn't that bad. I mean, by that point, David and I had watched the final Friday already. You know, we were renting fucking Friday the 13th and all that stuff from the video stores. Yeah, it was kind of like, this is a game that got me thinking. I mean, essentially, Resident Evil was missed, uh, but with characters you could play in it. And there was a great marriage of those two things. And So Resident Evil signaled the end of your playing with toys that's a pity for a good long time for rob and i for Uh, rob and i it signaled a kind of a growing up of the way we played with our toys all of a sudden they became more resource conscious it was like do you have enough ammo to survive this next onslaught we need to scrounge for supplies all of a sudden like real world concerns or real human concerns became a factor in our game playing and and as a result we were kind of growing up within the way we played with our gi joes in that right robbie yeah i think so um and it was all thanks to the mechanic of resident evil i'd say yeah instead of like in paul's case uh, if video games entirely almost entirely replaced toy collecting um video games seemed to inform our our toy collecting and toy playing it mm. just it was another way of Here's another idea. This is another way that we can play with our with our toys. <laughs> and became and more atmospheric. <laughs> like, it wasn't just, like, us messing around with Joes on the carpet uh, in broad daylight. It was kind of, like, secretive and scary. <laughs> we didn't know what was around the next corner. It wasn't just a bunch of terrorists holding Uzis. It was like, this could be a creature that rips our guts out. <sighs> yeah, no, the atmosphere was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, I long for those days, Robbie. (laughs) So old now. Resident Evil is is a landmark uh, moment in pop culture for many. For me, mostly because I was still pretty innocent when this game hit me. Not kind of where my mind is now, I suppose. But uh, when that zombie, you know, craned its head around, that was some texturing and video game that we just hadn't seen. And, like, the fixed camera put a clamp on your chest, you know, that kind of thing. So I I didn't really make the association at the time with G.I. Joe, but with the stars, I can definitely see it. If you're talking about, like, the team that's barnstorming the mansion on Resident Evil, do you guys have any cast fillers for that squad? Oh, you're saying substituting G.I. Joe members as stars members. I'm sure there are plenty of parallels. I mean, do you guys have particular people from the Joe line that you like in those roles? Let's, for the listeners, just give a rundown of what the Stars team, the Alpha team, consisted of. I know, of course, uh, the two stars of the Stars, <laughs> the playable characters, that being Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine. Who else was on the team, guys? Uh, Rebecca Chambers. <laughs> that dick. <laughs> Rebecca Chambers, Brad. Wesker. Wasn't Rebecca Chambers on the Bravo team? She was on yeah. the Bravo team, but she was involved in Resident Evil 1, obviously. So, mm. And she is a playable character. Uh, you do use her in the game. Cool. Yeah. There's also Barry, too, who kind of feels like Outback to me. Are we ready for our Resident Evil recast? I am. If you were going to take a team of Joes into that mansion, 
who would be on your team. There's quite a few characters in the game, so I'm not going to cast all of them. I think with Barry, I got to go with Outback. Just uh, physical appearance, mostly. Chris Redfield is probably like maybe a Falcon or something like that. I haven't really thought much about him. But the one that kind of immediately left out to me, that's got to be Wesker. And it's easy to say, well, that could be Zartan. Mm. But since you guys always say I'm old school, uh, if you recall in Sigma-6, uh, Firefly began on the G.I. Joe team and then ah. he uh, traded sides. So I think that actually Firefly is a good fit for Wesker. Uh, what say you, Paul? I like that choice. I mean, I never knew about that in Sigma-6 because I couldn't get past an episode of it. <laughs> well, buddy, can I give you a bit of uh, Sigma-6 Firefly trivia? There was a secret message on his uh, his packaging that said Firefly is a traitor. I think it was either in the oh, barcode like or along that. the side, but that was, um, that was a bit meta. That was pretty cool. Just to let kids out there that know that cool. this character that you're buying, um, he might not be one of the good guys. In Resident Evil, there's like a lot of ground to cover in terms of characters, but staying focused on Resident Evil 1. For me, I I see uh, Wesker as being Zartan, but as Evil Duke, because that's kind of a, a, a sort of a, a cool little in-joke with Zartan, is that, you know, he now comes with a Duke face, and then the sideshow version comes with the alternate head of, you know, Evil Duke, and we've got Evil Duke in uh, the cartoon, and... Uh, I like that idea of it specifically being Evil Duke because you've got a character that is Duke. You know, he's like, you know, he's white bread and, um, you know, armed to the teeth. And he's just he represents the great things about being an American soldier. And meanwhile, he's probably dead somewhere. And he's been taken over by this uh, shape-shifting mastermind who is uh, working from the inside to destroy his own organization. If I had to give just a setting for my Resident Evil recast in the 90s, I mean, G.I. Joe and Cobra's battles went very quiet in the 90s, so we can assume that G.I. Joe managed to beat Cobra down. But what Cobra did is is that they were very subversive in their sort of approach. So what they did is they started creating uh, pharmaceutical companies so that they could still experiment and still do kind of genetic manipulation on, on people and you know make them better and stronger, faster. But, you know, they, they had to get around different sort of laws. So they set up um, this mansion in a, a town. Uh, but instead of calling it Springfield and it being a dead ringer because G.I. Joe is on their case, uh, they just called it something obscure like uh, Raccoon City. And they, they managed to buy up the uh, powers that be, like the mayor, the chief of police and all that stuff. So they set up their little workshop there and they built up their lab. You know, they, they're not operating as Cobra. They're a pharmaceutical company. And uh, they've got a plant and special forces. You know, they've got different uh, sleeper agents and whatever's in different special forces organizations. What happens is because there was no more action for G.I. Joe anymore, with the, without Cobra being a an obvious threat, Lady J and Flint decided to go into the sort of law enforcement circle, but maybe move to a smaller town so that, you know, they could focus on things they were really good at. So they became part of stars. Is anyone else getting a huge parallels to G.I. Joe Renegades out of this? Like Cobra being a pharmaceuticals company, uh, Flint and Lady J being law enforcement? Hmm. No, that was not my intention, neither did you mention hmm. it. Um, yeah, the parallels but, are there. 
And I only ever watched G.I. Joe Renegades once, so I didn't like it that much. But anyway, Paul, continue, buddy. <laughs> they go and investigate a series of strange happenings in the Oakley Mountains. Um, their Bravo team goes out to go investigate that stuff. So then they obviously find themselves in the mansion. And uh, instead of Barry being a big white redhead dude, I, I see Barry as being Roadblock. I see Roadblock as being a great character for Barry. Because Roadblock, by his very nature, is a very chilled and very nice guy. And I can see Roadblock sort of settling down and having a family and then an organization like Cobra being able to leverage that against him, um, causing him to be a bit of a traitor. Uh, because as you guys, if you guys have forgotten, Barry also betrays the Stars team, but does redeem himself. And yeah, so they investigate this mansion that is full of a new sort of threat. And, you know, we could call that new threat. I, I would say, listen, it's very simple. I'm just going to go with the zombie vipers. Why not? But, you know, we are talking in the 2000s now. We're not talking in the 90s. So I would say these uh, zombies also reactivate. So if you don't set them alight, they come back and they're even more aggressive and more vicious. And, yeah, Cobra's got a lot of stuff cooking. And Steven sort of said something earlier. And I feel like if I say this, it's going to be a cop-out. So I actually did think of a plan B. <laughs> but my idea was that Cobra is also trying to build the ultimate super soldier and that the zombies themselves are a byproduct of that in trying to make the perfect super bat that they could use and sell to other ter terrorist organizations to then take over the world. So in essence, they try to create Serpentor. But my plan B for that, you know, in, in trying to create the ultimate super weapon that they work out that, no, this ultimate super weapon is really cool, a manimal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that supposed to be like the hunters yes i mean that is my a, favorite that... sequence on resident evil when you get first person perspective and the hunter is like cruising through environments that you've just passed through that that freaked me the fuck out big time yeah oh, totally and the damn dog jumping through that damn window holy <laughs> shit dude when we played that game we literally I threw my control, and my friend and I, we were like, ah, what the hell, what the hell? And then we, like, try to pick it up and try to shoot the damn thing, and it killed us. It was so fucking hilarious. I remember Robin, my mutual friend, Alistair, like, he refused. Like, if it, if we were playing with the lights out, he was like, no, no, I can't, I can't do this. When the liquor in Resident Evil 2 jumps through the interrogation room glass, the, sort of the one-way glass... Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Alistair just was like, no, no, can we switch off now, please? This is freaking me out. I can't watch anymore. <laughs> so it had a <laughs> profound effect, man. Big time. Does anyone else want to step in with a, a fantasy recast of Star's members? Instead of thinking of a, a, a recasting or Resident Evil stuff, I just thought of like a, just a mini scenario in the G.I. Joe universe. Terrific. Which, I mean, it was just basically... <laughs> kind of inspired i suppose by the thing it's kind of like a well not so much the thing but i mean there's a remote cobra outpost in antarctica or something and uh gi joe has to go out there to investigate what's going on there and their helicopter doom. crashes doom, doom. and you know then they have to, <laughs> they have, to doom, doom. they have to make their way to the uh to the research facility uh, and obviously when they get there um it's it's all kind of it's all broken down maybe there's a couple of survivors and you know, um, maybe not 
but as they go along they kind of piece together what's going on there and then they encounter terrific zombies and stuff um, and yeah I thought I thought that was kind of a, a cool idea the team that I kind of made because um, I was just trying to find the, the G.I. Joes because obviously all G.I. Joes are military personnel at least generally so they all are pretty well equipped to be able to um, face normal stuff like this but I thought an interesting team would be um, Airborne he would have survived the crash uh, Lady J because you need a, a final girl for the for the story <laughs> for a horror story final girl nice <laughs> <laughs> Scoop would be in there too because Obviously, <laughs> um, and then First like someone, <laughs> and then someone with kind of like a connection to um, maybe not so much the mystical, but kind of like folklore and stuff. And that, that for whatever weird reason, that made me think of Gung Ho coming from the bayous and stuff. Obviously, being very close with I suppose the, the sort of New Orleans um, voodoo culture in a way, um, and he'd have a very interesting perspective on what was going on. Now I thought maybe either Doc or Psyker would be final member of this team you know someone who has like a more of a medical understanding of, of this sort of stuff the more reasoned person rob did you ever read gi joe frontline yes i did i think it was frontline something like that the first story arc was the joe team going to and going to ice space wasn't it? yeah you just yeah. you just reminded me uh Harmon did the first four issues and then a guest writer came on to do issues five six seven and eight and that told this tale of like a I think it was a like an outpost that Duke had ventured to way back when with his team, and mm. they got slaughtered. But Hawk wants Duke to go back <laughs> and find out what the you hell. You need to know what's going on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I might have those comments somewhere. There were, sure where, of, they were a bunch of. They were zombies. They were a bunch of like um, mutated like they, they were cold weather troopers that had some kind of like I think they had polar bear DNA spliced in with them. So it made them really hardy towards cold environments, but made them like basically like werewolves. Yes, like werewolves or like wendigos. Yes. Oh, that's the word. Nice. Yeah, I actually <laughs> got that. I got that set of traits, the GI Joe frontline traits. It's a very cool little. Uh, I like some of those stories and and yeah, uh, it's just what's like a really fun mini series. Dipping into the horror well quite nicely, which is an interesting aesthetic for GI Joe. I like that Rob's story sort of like ventures into Code Veronica a little, you know, because Code Veronica is about Chris disappearing after um, going to take out Umbrella's sort of head, which leads him to Paris and then ultimately to Antarctica, and uh, having Claire follow him, uh, follow his footsteps to try and find him, you know, that could meld very well with Resident Evil Code Veronica, and just like Resident Evil Code Veronica, you could have Zaymot and Tomax as the, the, the villains for that yeah yes. the twins the Alex and Alexia um, <laughs> I can't think of their surname Umbrella yeah oh no <laughs> they've got a Spencer they, the, uh, Alex and Alexia Spencer uh, who are the masterminds behind uh, what's called it behind Umbrella and, and my and goodness Paul I've played that game and man you're like reminding me of stuff how do you remember that stuff I mean I guess your game knowledge is perhaps uh, on par with my Joe knowledge. Let's let's, let's and transformer. I think it's knowledge. safe to safe to assume that. I oh, know I'm nowhere with Transformers, Mister Teletran One. <laughs> I'm not ready to relinquish the Resident Evil belt just yet. Have Did you guys get into the fourth Survivor on Resident Evil Two? Do you have a casting for that character? Um, oh, from Tofu. 
Well, there was a or Doctor Death, and I always saw that as Firefly. Did you get? Did you see that as anybody else? Shockwave. <laughs> what Kujo is saying is actually very interesting because you only get a little bit of that information from Resident Evil Zero. You actually find out what kind of role Hunk actually plays in the Resident Evil saga, especially the actual knock-on effect that he has in Resident Evil 2. And obviously you find out, uh, I mean, you in Resident Evil 2, you actually see those events are played out directly because you find out that Wesker and Dr. William Birkin, who becomes the big monster of Resident Evil 2, the sort of holder of the G-Virus, Wesker and him were working together, but ultimately they were both planning to screw each other over. Birkin didn't want Wesker getting the G-Virus. Wesker knew the only way to get the G-Virus was to sort of kill Birkin. And then Umbrella sort of knew that they were being screwed around. So they basically sent Hunk in to actually get the G-Virus from under both of them, uh, which is what actually leads to Dr. Birkin actually injecting himself with the G-Virus itself. So I could totally see Firefly as Hunk. I think that is spot on. That is right on the money. Cheers, mm. bro. The only problem is, is Hunk, has, Hunk has actually got a conscience, uh, apparently, from files that you read in Nemesis, on Biohazard 3, Lost Escape, or Nemesis. You actually find out, know that uh, he was also scheduled to be terminated because he was uh, showing signs of defection or something. Well, Firefly's loyalties are, are fickle. He goes where the cash flows. So that, that could be a factor in favor of Hunk. And Firefly being one and the same. When I cast uh, Zartan as Wesker, or Evil Duke, should I say, as Wesker, you know, if if Zartan was ever pushed pushed into the direction of wanting to do something about the world, like he put his energy into trying to change the world, I could see him being very much like a Wesker-style character, where with his abilities, and I'm not talking about face changing or whatever, just with his abilities, his manipulation, his training, his skill set, I could see him working that and and being very much like Wesker in sort of subverting uh, Umbrella and trying to sort of reshape the world in in his mold, you know, trying to make the world a better a better place as he sees it, where only the strong survive. If Zartan was pushed in that kind of motivation, but as we know, Zartan. It doesn't have a sort of global agenda. His agenda is very sort of self-serving. Hmm. So, uh, Just in case any listeners were unclear at that point, in Resident Evil 2, if you complete both characters in their A and B formats, I mean, it's quite a complex series of events that you have to jump through to get to this point. But if you do that and achieve it under a certain time and with a certain rating, you get to unlock this other playable character who looks like he's wearing SWAT uh, clothing. He's heavily armed, and his mission is to escape from the labs back up to the police station where he gets rescued by a helicopter. And he has to shoot his way through hordes and hordes of zombies in order to do that. So uh, we figure Firefly would be a dead ringer for that character. <laughs> Anybody else? The G.I. Joe Collectors Club idea of what a good zombie fighting team would be. You have only to look at the zombie initiative box set, which they released at the Dallas, Texas Joe Con in 2014, which included a couple of new figures and reissues and stuff. So their Joe team would be Clean Sweep, Flint, Outback, and Ozone, as well as a Steel Brigade Commander. 
I don't like that guy's paint job. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. I love the Steel Brigade, uh, but I suppose it's not your favorite powder blue. Nice. Well, that kind of, that coloring almost looks a little kind of like Bayou, since uh, <laughs> Rob brought that up. I like that kind of insight about the bad juju and or, or, or voodoo or whatever. It's a nice redirection for the eco-warriors, because let's face it, I mean, the 90s were all about these kind of ecological concerns, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, uh, Toxic Crusaders, all of that jazz kind of had its heyday in the 90s, and the eco-warriors tapped into that. But recasting them as, as a response team to the zombie disaster is pretty clever and a nice way of getting those figures out again. Uh, or those characters out again, because I mean, let's face it, they all look like they had PhDs. <laughs> like they are the like the the brain squad, uh, not necessarily frontline Joes. Yo. I, I got a, a a character to cast in the first game. Isn't it Brad Vickers who kind of cowardly runs away? He flies the helicopter away and leaves you stranded, right? Mm. And then if you yeah, take a bit of <laughs> Well, if you take the right path, you find him in the second game as a zombie. Am I right? That's good. Uh, you don't take anything yes, yes, out yes, 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 when yes. you start, and, and when you get to the police station, you encounter him under like a bridge or something by the police station. Yeah, if you reach the police station without picking up any items, you will find Brad Vickers, or at least his reanimated corpse, shuffling along underneath the police station. What joke why could... would you want to do that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you guys know? To get the special key! Why? Yes! <laughs> which gets you a very nice gun. So, uh, is there a Joe that feels like he would be cowardly to you? Who, who would you cast in that role? Cowardly Joe? Jeez, you got me thinking. Anyone? My fill-in here would be purely aesthetic, but what's the name of that guy that they put in the in the Locust box art, um, Steve? Topside? There we go. He looks very much like Topside. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I can see that. <laughs> I'm not saying Topside's a coward. I'm just saying that, you know, the jacket and everything. I mean, if Topside had to rock up in 1950s America and he was hit by, you know, uh, Lorraine's dad's car, they would all ask him if he was a sailor. I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Well, Cutter's got the same thing going on, don't he? The puffer jacket. Yeah. But Cutter's actually a sailor. (laughs) That's the difference. I'm not sure what the fuck Topside is. Oh, he's a naval assault seaman. He sounds like a continent. (laughs) <laughs> yep, he's a condiment. <laughs> who's this guy in the uh, stars photo who's rocking a silenced Uzi and has a headband on? He's kneeling um, in the front row right next to Valentine, I think. I think that's Forrest. That's the side of Forrest, or you know when you encounter the first zombie and you see the whole sort of zombie, like, brrr, and then he drops, and then the head is the what is known as the Michael Jordan head. I think it could be that guy. I just can't think of his name. Or the guy he's chowing. Yeah. So the the body that that first zombie is eating is Forrest. Yes. I think that's the dude with the silenced um, machine gun. And that was the tale of him. Did anybody have any other female castings for the stars team? For me, Claire is Scarlet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So say we all, I guess. Well, I I like Jill as uh, Lady J. Mm. She wears a cap. And then Claire... Or a beret. Yeah, exactly. What about Chambers? Yeah, hmm. uh, that's a tricky one. Well, Doc uh, has been recast as a female sometimes. And Rebecca Chambers uh, was a medic, wasn't she? Doc's daughter. Oh, and Dial Tone. You also get a female Dial Tone. 
Although, although mm. Rebecca Chambers is a medical chick. Yep. Oh, okay. So I'm looking at that photo now of the stars guy. That guy holding the silenced Uzi, that's the guy that in the intro, he gets taken out by the first dog. Oh, uh, I guess that headband didn't work Cerberus. out. Cerberus, by the first Cerberus. Damn. Yeah. So that's him. Uh, next. <laughs> <laughs> When I was uh, <laughs> pondering this topic, I tried to think of instances where G.I. Joe actually did dabble with zombification. And let me take you guys back in time to issue number 50 of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, The Invasion of Springfield. Now, in a very compassionate move, Cobra decides to evacuate the citizenry of Springfield. If Cobra was not quite so compassionate, and if they had had possession of something like the T-Virus, they could have sanctioned that entire town and made sure that no one ever talked about the involvement of Cobra ever again. They could silence an entire town by making it a biological disaster zone. And what makes this doubly exciting is they could have done it in and around the time that they realized its cover had been blown. I don't know if you guys can remember back in issue 49, the G.I. Joe assault on Springfield was spearheaded by a team, a small team, a recon team, led by Stalker and consisting of Snake Eyes, Scarlet, Quick Kick, Recondo, Spirit, Torpedo, Beachhead and Leatherneck. Well there's your stars team right there boys. They fly into Springfield ahead of the main assault and their mission was firstly to cut the power to the town so they'd hit the water and electricity utilities and then they would go straight to the police headquarters and take it out because they assume that you know that's where a, a concentration of arms will be and law enforcement would be typically would, would have been used by Cobra to coordinate assaults during the, the attack on Springfield. So these were strategic targets and they kind of mirror for me at least, what happens in Resident Evil 2, where your first instinct is to go to the police station. You'll be safe there, says Leon Kennedy. What happens when these guys hit the ground and take out the power station and then move over to the police station is they realize that they are no longer in a town full of living, breathing people but instead a town overrun by shuffling, mindless, infected zombies. Immediately, they radio Hawk and say, do not land your troops. This place is a biological disaster zone. You need to coordinate off. Cobra has done something horrific here. Send in the eco-warriors. <laughs> Send in the eco-warriors. But the problem at hand is, this recon team is now trapped behind an emergency cordon and they need to survive in Zombie Springfield. And that's the setting for my G.I. Joe Resident Evil recast. It's an exciting team, it's got some ethnic diversity, which is wonderful, and uh, a hallmark of these kind of like small groups of, of horror victim uh, casts. You know, you've got Quick Kick <laughs> representing uh, Asia, 
you've got a Native American in the form of spirit, and you've got an African American in the form of stalker, uh, mixed in with the rest. I mean, Rikondo, I've always thought of as a South African. It must be the moustache. <laughs> and the ultimate man in black, Snake Eyes, of course. So, it's anybody's guess who gets wasted first, but, uh, I'm imagining it's, it's, uh, native, uh, Hawaiian boy, <laughs> Torpedo. It's those flippers that slow him down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You've got your Tokyo girl, who is also a redhead. I mean, this team is perfect. You've got your badass in the form of Beachhead <laughs> in the mix. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful little microcosm of G.I. Joe. And the fact that they actually wound up being the recon team in the, the Springfield Assault makes them doubly uh, appropriate. There was also reference of Serpentor being a an experimentation in zombification. I mean, he is an amalgamation of dead beings, deceased remains. So he is reanimated. But issue 50 has a very important real zombie walking around in it. Can anyone remember who that was? Storm Shadow? Bingo! Storm Shadow. That's a bingo. <laughs> Storm Shadow was gunned down dead by the Baroness. But somehow, during the creation of Serpentor, where Storm Shadow's biological remains were used to give Serpentor some fresh meat, he somehow reanimated, climbs out of his tank. The Dreadnoughts discover him towering over them, and they're like, Storm Shadow? He was deader than a doornail! Now he's alive! Alive? No. To be alive is to have hope and fear. I am simply not dead. I have the memories of a dead man. They are cold and dark, like black icicles. And they are not alone. I remember. I remember Carthage. Tyre and Sumer, I remember the splendor of Rome's legions, the golden horde of the great Khan, the smell of death at Ypres. 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 Fuck, I don't know this word. Anyway. Oh, Waterloo. nobody can pronounce it anyway. Hastings. <laughs> and it goes on. So Storm Shadow is... Storm Shadow is G.I. Joe, a real American hero's first zombie. My god. And something that you could do to, to add uh, a counter for Storm Shadow is Snake Eyes gets injected by the progenitor virus because it's Resident Evil 2 and then essentially gets cured but the progenitor virus starts to manifest within his body and he starts to get enhanced physical attributes very much like Leon that's why Leon can do all these amazing things in Resident Evil 4 because he's been injected by infected by the progenitor virus yeah I'm afraid I stepped off by then brother (laughs) It but, became uh, something but, uh, else. Well, Resident Evil 4 is a milestone in gaming, but essentially Leon could be an unmasked snake eyes, uh, whose wounds and things like that are uh, healed back and whose face and voice and everything came back from the sort of healing capabilities or the regenerative capabilities of the progenitor virus. Hmm. Things also known as the nemesis virus as well, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so in- that goes in nicely because now you have two very super-powered ninja, ninja characters or characters that would be superpowered in the G.I. Joe-verse are now superpowered in the Resident Joe-verse. But this being a take on Resident Evil, Storm Shadow's zombification would have several different phases. 
and mutations. <laughs> he would start off looking pretty normal when you face him first, but as <laughs> as he keeps coming back, he becomes more and more grotesquely mutated and eyeballs popping out of his shoulders and horns and tusks. I mean, it's kind of cool to think that your ultimate villain would be Just... would be Storm Shadow, a ninja now infected with, I suppose, the G-Virus and mutating horrifically to come back and try to kill you again and again and again while your ethnically diverse friends fall by the wayside. Stalker, no! Quick kicker! Scarlet! Who's left? It's Snake Eyes versus Storm Shadow, as it should be. Exactly. And and as Snake Eyes evolves, his polygon count just goes up. <laughs> nice. The presentation of Springfield in the comic books feels a lot like Raccoon City in a sense, because Springfield always had this this like subterranean world that existed beneath the surface. Like yeah. everything was interconnected. Cobra had this underground network beneath the city where it had labs. That's where Dr. Venom experimented with uh, his viruses to create the, the I suppose, the, whatever he infected Scarface with, like that virus that he planned to destroy G.I. Joe using. I mean, that all happened underground in Springfield. Um, parts of Springfield, like they said, they have poison gas, like underneath the pizzeria, and that like all the billboards and signs have sophisticated radar equipment also, like, the arcade had a functioning laser cannon in the middle of it. So kids could use that to kill uh, any sort of undesirables that Cobra made targets of. And so this world creates such an interesting environment for resetting the Resident Evil saga inside it. Because all of a sudden you've got the puzzle-solving mechanic of the Resident Evil games invested in an existing G.I. Joe plot. So the recon team has to escape this puzzle city, as it were, with its winding catacombs and super high-tech equipment smashed up with, like, little town vibes. Yeah, man, that's how I see my Resident Evil G.I. Joe hybrid. Oh, and another cool thing, like, in issue 50, Cobra Eels detonate all of the tunnels that link the, the uh, airfield to the stadium. Because they secretly move all the Cobra choppers from the airfield into the stadium using this underground tunnel. Then they blow up the tunnel behind them to stop G.I. Joe from tracing their steps back to the stadium and thereby stopping the evacuation. So, like, the concept of being able to blow up your city is embedded in G.I. Joe. Just like the self-destruct sequence at the end of Resident Evil and Resident Evil 2... It's such a strong theme. Yeah, man. At the same time, at the same place, you too must survive this horror to know the true end. No, no, I like that. That's very cool. Thank you. I hope Jim Godfrey's listening to this episode, <laughs> as I'm sure he will be. And I mean, Jim, no pressure, bro, but I've got a feeling we're going to see a Resident Evil custom from Jim. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. Do you have a... Oh, there's a crow outside my window. <laughs> That's not even a joke. Do you cool. have a, a cast? <laughs> so fucking cool. <laughs>
Do you have a casting for the nemesis? I just see somebody in snake armor walking through walls. Do you, do you see that any differently? Who on this podcast hates the snake armor? I love the snake armor. I, I only grew an affection for it when I saw it in hand. Otherwise, I'd always thought it was very clunky and very stupid. But then when you read about it in the comic book and you actually have the, the toy in hand, it comes together really well. Uh, you know what, I'm confusing the members of this podcast with Hooded Cobra Commander 788, who does not like the snake armor. That's what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm uh. not going to defend or or attack his points here. If you want to check out reasons for why he does not like the snake armor, you need look no further than YouTube, where you'll find his reviews. Hooded Cobra Commander 788. Do yourself a favor, check him out. His stuff's actually a lot of fun. That He's man one of works the real guys. very hard. He puts yeah. out a lot of content. <laughs> we are lazy schmucks, by comparison. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Gents, does anyone have anything else to add on the topic of Resident Evil's 20th anniversary? I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about another anniversary happening, not only this year, but on this very day. Today... 33 years ago, Paul Lobsher was born. Happy birthday, Paul! Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a three, three-quarter inch scale figure now as well. Well, I will be in about a few months. I'll be three and three-quarter inch then. But right now, I'm just a three and three-quarter, three and three figure. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of threes, dude. It is. <laughs> Tell us something about Kujo that. Kujo also has some divine knowledge on the number 33 that he he might want to wax lyrical with us. But thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Happy birthday. Has it been a good day? I would say it's been a fucking epic day so far. It's it's definitely ranks as one of the best ones. But it is the best one because it happened today. So that was <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> and even if it wasn't a good one, hey, you're podcasting with us, and that's a reason to smile, right? I fully agree. Thank um, you. It's actually that was not a trick question. <laughs> There is only one answer to that question, and it's yes, yes, Stephen. Uh, uh, I love yes. podcasting with you. Yes, that's right. Anytime you want to do one of these, just just crack the whip, boy. <laughs> no, if somebody asks you if you love podcasting, say yes. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I, I I really dug today. For me, difficult birthdays are the ones that you spend alone. And today, I must be honest, I haven't been alone. For my birthday, which has been great, so really appreciate that. Nice. Also, something about Resident Evil, just quick, quick. It's very cool how Resident Evil tries so hard to be American. Like, it's it's like Shinji Mikami is a big fan of like sort of American style films and whatever. I think one of the reasons why it's so easy to put a GI Joe flavor into something like Resident Evil, or rather to redress. Mm-hmm. Resident Evil in a G.I. Joe form is because the very idea of Resident Evil is to be a game that emulates the American action horror movie genre and is very much like sort of a a fan of that genre's sort of love letter in a lot of ways. So it's Shinji Mikami, the creator of Resident Evil and Devil May Cry and Dino Crisis and also Okami when speaking about him. But anyway, like... Very much like how Hideo Kojima is a big fan of Western uh, pop culture and Western films and Western books and music, uh, Shinji Mikami is also uh, one of those kind of Japanese 
creators who really enjoys the American influence on pop culture, at least on his life or whatever. So coming back to Resident Evil, it is a love letter. It's it's really trying to be as American as possible. And I I love that because in trying to be that, it's kind of quirky in its own regard. And it also creates a lot of sort of stereotypical characters and, and borrows heavily from other horror movies and other horror concepts, other horror movie concepts, and to great effect, as you guys can attest as well. But I really love that Resident Evil is a product of that. Metal Gear Solid is a product of that. Silent Hill is a product of that. But with Resident Evil, it's very easy to insert G.I. Joe because G.I. Joe in its own way is also trying very hard to be very American. I say that with respect in the sense that G.I. Joe is very American. At least it's very American 1980s. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong there, Kujo. No, I'm not going to dispute those words. Uh, I mean, he is the American hero. But America's a state of mind. It always has been. It's people with explosions behind them. So, I mean, it works. Dude, before we get away from Resident Evil, we got to talk about a couple characters by association. We got one of Croc Master's crocodiles in Resident Evil 2 in the, in the sewer. Time. Big time. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know Junkyard got loose uh, outside the mansion. Um, <laughs> a lot of junkyards. Zombified junkyards. Yeah. There's probably some other animals there, too, but... Uh, There's a, a shark, which is beautiful in the remake. In oh, the yeah. Thank you for saying that. But no, mm-hmm. the uh, the Jaws crocodile, that was a nice moment, because he, he <laughs> sticks that, you know, that compressed air in his mouth. Yeah, boom. <laughs> God, those are good games. No, Resident Evil 2 is kind of like... I turned that game into my religion one summer. Like, I could almost beat it without firing a gun, except for at the bosses. Hmm. So yeah, that's I, kind I, of where I, we I, were. That's how it should be done, according to uh, the speedrunners. You don't waste anything on a, on a zombie. You don't even carry the handgun and handgun ammunition. You just take the effective, like, boss-killing gun. <laughs> you know the true legends of the game. They're always going to pick up herbs um, and make good use of them. So, <laughs> Like all true legends. <laughs> Word. Uh, um, well, Code Veronica is a very good example of that because Code Veronica's knife is obscenely strong and once you get a, a hang of it, you actually end up putting your gun away and you just keep the shotgun around you for hunters. But you use that knife for everything. Spiders, zombies, everything. <laughs> cool. Kujo's going to totally remember this from Resident Evil 2. Uh, the mayor, you know, the mayor's quite a sick son of a bitch in Resident Evil 2 because when you find his uh, journal... I mean, that guy, like, he does some, like, pretty uh, shit things to people. Because he's got a bit of a sadistic sort of quality to him. Uh, But that's also what makes him uh, easy to manipulate for uh, Umbrella. Because they kind of have that that hanging over his head kind of situation. So, once again, you know, Cobra could have a town full of devout citizens purely uh, based on blackmail. Uh, And... And um, their allegiance is more sort of a um, an, an obedience or, or fear or obligation to Cobra than it is a sort of Nazi-styled devotion. And those who they can't get obedience out of, they just infect. Exactly. They turn mm. them into weapons. Dun, dun, dun. It's sexy. And yet we still got the fucking G.I. Joe movie that we got. Twice. <laughs> If I may be so bold as to say that some of the ideas that have been discussed on this podcast have made for, A, 
a better G.I. Joe movie and B, a better Resident Evil movie <laughs> than oh, what geez, we Don't got. even get me started on the Mila Jovovich debacles. I quite enjoyed the first one, but man, it went off the me rails too, big but... time, quick after that. Yeah, and how? But still, they never quite evoked the atmosphere of the Resident Evil games. I felt like I was watching a superhero movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting into the movies. Jovovich was too trumped up, man. You need your protagonist to be vulnerable, which is why Chris Redfield starts off with a knife. He doesn't even have a gun. And you have to use the small keys. And he has limited capacity to carry items. Like, those limitations make the gameplay great. Exactly. That's what made it horror. That's what made the game scary. Because you actually had a legitimate fear of making the wrong decision and then having to do it all again. That really sucked. That was... That was painful to do. It's something that is now genre-defining in certain games. I'm looking at you, Demon Souls, Dark Souls, and um, Bloodborne. And that's not a bad thing, but I'm just saying it. It's a style of gameplay that is, is slowly sort of being shifted out and being turned into sort of a an elitist gaming concept, where that used to just be the way. Gents, I think we should now enter into the sanctity of the save room. Does someone oh, have an ink ribbon? Um, <laughs> I like this music, bro. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a good <laughs> calm before the storm. Where, as Paul says, your choices as to what items to take from that box will determine whether you live or die, or whether you will have to do it all over again. So you need to calm down, you need to peace the fuck out, you need to get some zen, while you hit those keys. <laughs> Anyone got any reflections on save rooms? I think the journals in Resident Evil are much like the file cards in Joe. Like, oh, very much. They give graphics the story. Yeah, no, I, I love the save room. I mean, the Resident Evil game changed gaming. I could go on, but I think it did for everybody. It's just one of those things. So. It's a cool little uh, thing that you just said now, because there are dossiers on the stars members that have been collected by Umbrella that you also eventually find. And that's really interesting as well. And, uh, you know, little tidbits like uh, Wesker having a serious sort of crush on Rebecca Chambers. If you search his <laughs> desk... She's like 17. Yep. Now, if you search his desk 50 times in Resident Evil 2, a photo will turn up, and uh, later on in the game you can develop those photos. I can't remember quite where, but you you can develop that photo, and it's actually a photo of Rebecca with a basketball. No, I'm not doing anything exciting. It's just it's just like part of the Wesker personal collection. Nice recall. Mm. Very nice. <laughs> Put that in your fucking save room and smoke it. For me, the most chilling information typically came by reading those journals. Reading scraps of paper left behind by people who no doubt met their untimely demise at the hands of some ghastly undead creature. And just reading their words. Like this one guy who um, was a police officer 
who would yeah. meet with a homeless guy every day for a game of chess. And as the entries continue, it becomes evident that this homeless guy is not looking too well. Uh, eventually, the cop says, "Listen, man, we we shouldn't we shouldn't play today. You just look terrible. Maybe you should go and rest somewhere." And then the next entry is like, "I didn't see my buddy today." I hope he's okay. But come to think of it, I'm not feeling too well myself. Mm-hmm. Dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah, and in Resident Evil One, the groundskeeper, uh, like his journal sticks out to me as well. Like, itchy, scratchy, tasty, and then his journal's words start getting more and more scrambled, and 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 all they are is just tasty, scratchy. And all that stuff because he's he's obviously expressing his feelings because he's turning into a zombie. Love that shit, man. Yeah, I think he's hanging out in the closet. Yes, yes, yes. In the groundskeeper's uh, room in the first game. I just got goose flesh. Fans of GI Joburg, if you've lost it through this episode and you do not know a thing about Resident Evil, congratulations. I imagine it couldn't have always been easy work. Uh, hopefully it's been somewhat rewarding work and maybe just maybe if you have access to an old console or maybe a new one or maybe a PC that can support a copy of Resident Evil give it a bash you might like what you find and if you happen to be like us fans of both G.I. Joe and Resident Evil I hope you loved listening to this episode as much as we loved giving it this is Steve saying keep your powder dry Keep a first aid spray nearby. And don't forget those ink ribbons. Drop an RPG out of a helicopter every once in a while. Damn. Yeah. Hey, duh! And this is Paul saying, Don't worry, I've got this. Nice. <laughs> it's a lockpick. I think you, the master of unlocking things, should have this. <laughs> Exactly. Well, dude, we... Yeah, there's just so much. There's so much. Is there anything significant about this year for you, Paul? Any big plans ahead, creatively? Uh, I have two very big plans. I'm working on my... My project's called uh, Tiger God um, that I'm working on now. I'm working on my... Uh, producing sketchbooks to sell next year. And I'm planning on going to Hong Kong next year. So, those are like big projects of mine. I mean, this year has been fairly good. There's been a lot of great things that have happened this year. There's been one bummer. The big 3-3, man. May it be a spectacular year, dude. But one thing's for sure. There will be podcasts. There will be G.A. Joburg. Yeah, yeah. Brains. The G. The G. <laughs> Got anything to say to the listeners, Rob, before we call it a night? Yeah, see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and if you hear something that goes bump in the night, guys... Lock the door. Check your ammo. Keep safe. Save. Gents, are we uh, a wrap on episode 76? I think we are. Alright. We'll see you in the new Lucky 77 episode. I hope we all survive to see episode 77. Oh, and by the way, if you happen to celebrate this sort of thing, happy Halloween.
<laughs> Come on, gents. Let's have a chorus of evil laughs. Beautiful. Impressive. Minus that cuddling, my parents would wake up. <laughs> <laughs>